Right, good morning. Thank God for another Sunday we can come to worship Him. It's always a joy to come together to worship. Uh, this year, from January to April, we're looking at this series, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told from Creation to Christ. Remember, when we read Scripture, we must remember this word called progressive revelation, which means God doesn't reveal Himself to us at one go. He does it progressively. We are not Jewish people, but we need to understand the events of the Old Testament uh, to understand what it meant for the people of that time. But we are new, new covenant followers, and so we need to look at these uh, Old Testament stories through the lenses of the cross. Not to change the meaning of the text, but really to understand the greater significance. So that is what we are trying to do, to see how is God, the one thing that God is doing throughout biblical history and throughout human history, and that is to unveil His redemptive plan. So generally, we look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is the preface, God's creation, how sin came into the world, and God promised the seed of the woman who will come to save us. And then the rest of the story is really unveiling who is this seed. In the time of Noah, even though God hit the reset button, but sin still persisted. And so, we continue the story of the seed of the woman. And so in January, uh, February, we realize that this saviour, the seed of the woman, will come through the family of Abraham. And so we look at <coughs> the sacrifice of Isaac today. And let us pray. Lord, we commit this time to you. I pray for your Holy Spirit to pour your love abundantly into our hearts that we will really see your redemptive story and see Christ lifted up and you glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take my life and let it be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee Take my moments and my days Let them flow in endless praise Let them flow in endless praise Take my will and make it Thine It shall not be no longer mine Take my heart, it is thine alone, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour, at thy feet is treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. You know, my wife and I uh, actually sang this song on our wedding in front of 700 of our friends, our relatives, colleagues. We wanted to declare that our life, new life together wasn't going to be just about us. We we're not just trying to set up a happy family we wanted to be used by God to be a blessing. And after we got married, of course, uh, we went on to seminary and started a full-time ministry. This song is written by Frances Havergill, February the 4th, 1874. She was an unusually gifted daughter of a pastor. She, could, she was an accomplished pianist and musician. And, her, and she knew many languages, including Greek and Hebrew. Her life goal was to be a blessing to others. And she wrote many hymns that are still being sung today. She said, on that day she wrote this hymn. She went to a house for a gathering. There were 10 people in the household. Some were non-Christians but would have been long been prayed for. Others were Christians but they didn't have the joy of the Lord. So she said, the Lord gave me an unusual prayer that day. I prayed, Lord, give me the people of this household today. Before I left that night, Everyone got a blessing. God answered my prayers and I was so excited I could not sleep. 
That night, I consecrated myself to the Lord. And the words of this hymn began appearing in my mind, line by line, until the last words, Ever, only, all for Thee. This hymn is a hymn of consecration. And she said, Consecration is not so much a step as a course, not so much an act as a position. It's not just one act, one thing we do, but our whole life, our attitude. Does this mean that we are always to be doing something definitely, some definitely religious work? No. But all that we do is to be always definitely done for Him. Consecration is a posture of our life. But what does it mean in reality? Sometimes we... Surrender to God and say, not my will, but yours be done. Sometimes that's forced upon us. We didn't really make a choice, right? In our ideal life, we get married at 25, by 28, you have children, by 30, you get promoted. But in reality, that's not the case. You struggle to find a partner. You struggle with infertility. Our job isn't as wonderful as we imagine it to be. But are we willing to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? On the other hand, there are times when we intentionally, intentionally make those decisions to surrender and say, not my will, but yours be done. It comes to our children. I mean, we want to, to provide them the best. But then you get busy, right? Sending them from one enrichment class to another. But are we willing to take a step back so that there are margins in our lives for others? Are we willing to spend our efforts on somebody else's children? Are we willing to take less? Like Homan and Alice, they moved to a place to serve the Lord and bring their whole children, all their kids along, right? And last year when I visited them, you know, I can sense the struggle they have also. They went to a place that, of course, in terms of educational resources, uh, there's far less there compared to here in Singapore. Or maybe, you know, you're facing your retirement and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to enjoy life travel the world, look after my grandchildren. And then you hear, you know, of the humanitarian crisis. Uh, we have the mentoring program in Queenstown Secondary. Are we willing to take out the time, the resources, and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? This is a question I'd like us to think about today as we look at Genesis 22. The story of Isaac, sacrifice of Isaac, the response of faith, the reason for faith, and the relevance to our faith. What is the response to our faith? Is to surrender your will at the altar by faith. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. What's the reason to do that? And how is that relevant? So it looks at, let's look at Genesis 22. <clears throat> now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. God first appeared to Abraham at 75. By a hundred he got his son Isaac. And he had already given up his other son, Ishmael, right? So why is it at this point, God would ask him to do this? <clears throat> What's the purpose? 
Some say, oh, so that God can see Abraham's response. Really? I mean, doesn't God already know? He has foreknowledge, right? So why did he do this? Friends, perhaps it is to reveal to Abraham the state of his heart. You see, it's not so much God needs to know, but rather we need to know. Many times in our life we say, oh, we put God first, we love God. But you know, it's only when it comes to dollars and cents, when we need to put in some effort, when, when the rubber meets the road, that we really reveal what we truly love in our hearts. Are we able to say, Lord, despite how I feel, not my will, but yours be done. And we struggle. We struggle because we have a tension between pursuing our self-desires or pursuing servanthood, pursuing temporal things or eternal things. And when our will don't line up with God's will, friends, that is where we wrestle and we struggle. The question is, are we willing to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? And we struggle because we want to control. We want to control our future, our destiny. But can we truly do that? Henry Nowen shares this story. There was a little river who was ambitious. He wanted to become a great river. So he says, no matter what I face, I'm going to push through. So he came to this big rock, this big boulder. He pushed and pushed and somehow pushed his way around. He came to this huge mountain he pushed and pushed and carved a canyon through the mountain. He came to this big forest. He turned left and right and meandered his way out of it. By this time, it was a great river. He came to the edge of a desert and he said, no desert is going to stop me. He pushed and he pushed and the water was all soaked up by the hot sand. Eventually, he stopped. He was exhausted and then he heard a voice from above. My child, stop pushing. Surrender. Let me take over. And the river said, Here I am, Lord. And so he was evaporated and formed a cloud in the air. The wind blew the cloud over the vast desert to a faraway land where he came down as rain to make the land fruitful. And somehow I think that is our lives. If we truly want to be fruitful, friends, we need to let go. Instead of holding on to what we think is best for ourselves, what is precious to us, because unless we let go, we will not experience the greater blessing of God. And the greater blessing isn't that you give $1, God returns you $10. You give up something, God gives you more. The greater blessing is coming to know who God is, to experience His joy, His peace, His purpose for our lives. If we think we can control our lives, I hope we don't think that because, I mean, the last three years with COVID-19, certainly we know that we are out of control. Now, thankfully, now we are Doscon Green, back to normal. But have we learned something from those years? Are we really just going back to before COVID? This year, we see, you know, there are a lot of challenges, wars, natural disasters, of course, closer to home recession, our jobs, with this uncertain future, are we going to hang on to our plans for ourselves? Or do we say, Lord, take my life, let it be, not my will, but yours be done. Yesterday, I was uh, praying my accountability partner. He's serving somewhere in the bush, not Bougainvillea bush or rose bush. Bush means somewhere in those jungle, okay? Don't know where. Um, and he shared with me, he says his son is 15. You know, when we knew each other, we all didn't have children. 
Say son is 15, next year he has to make a decision to send the son to boarding school because they just cannot keep up with the education anymore. And I can see and hear the struggles. Say he's only 15 years old, you know, how can I send him away? But I have no choice. Not my will, but yours be done. Friends, the response of faith is to surrender your will at the altar by faith. And why we do that? It's because God has prepared the substitutionary lamb for us. It's because God has given us His best. That's the reason for our faith. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes, saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his, Isaac, his son, and he took his hand, the fire and the knife. So two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. He said, Here I am, son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? They walked for three days to go to Mount Moriah. And then Abraham says, Okay, two of you stay here. I'll go together with my son to worship and we will return. And he plays the wood on his son Isaac. Isaac is probably in his teens, 10 to 12 years old. Okay? He's not a small boy. So you can imagine when we go barbecue, how much wood do you need? Or charcoal? One bag or two bag, right? You know, to burn a whole lamb, how much wood you need? It's not one log, okay? It's a whole bunch of them. And so Isaac carried it and he walked and then he's quite intelligent. He's, he felt a bit uneasy. He says, Father, Dad, where's the lamb? It's a reasonable question, right? And then Abraham said, God will provide Yahweh Jireh, the, where we get, we say Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh Jireh means God will see. When God sees, He will provide. Yahweh Jireh for Himself, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. How does Abraham know that God will provide? Scripture tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he, Isaac, to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham, by faith, believed God. God says, the promise will come through your son Isaac. And so he believed even if he killed Isaac, somehow God will raise him back. That was his faith. The question I ask is, where did Abraham get such faith? I mean, last week when we look at his story, I tell you, according to this text, it's all about the son Isaac. At the beginning, God promised him descendant. At the end, Isaac was born. That was the promised child. And the whole thing, the whole structure is centered upon God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham didn't always have faith, but God was always faithful. Now the question is, you know, we look at Abraham's life. He has ups and downs. Sometimes he has faith, sometimes he doesn't. But why is it after chapter 21, flip to chapter 22, wow, suddenly he had a lot of faith. What happened? It's because in Abraham's life, there were four major crises. The first, very first thing God says, leave your land and kindred. Everything you're familiar with, everything that gave you a sense of security and identity, he left. But he brought with him his nephew Lot, probably his favourite relative or maybe they're close in age, they're best friends. But Lot went with him. And so soon after God says, leave Lot behind. 
And he, said, he told Lot, choose wherever you want. And Lot was facing Sodom and Gomorrah, which was very a rich land. And so Lot chose that, and Abraham picked the wilderness. He had to give up his closest relatives to him at that time. As if that wasn't enough, then God says, someone closer, abandon your son Ishmael. And then finally, sacrifice Isaac, the one you've been waiting for so long. The reason Abraham was able to respond by faith, friend, because at every juncture when he was tested, he learned to trust God. He said, God, not my will, but yours be done. And he grew in faith. So question for us is, if every time we have to make a decision, every time we're at a crossroad, we choose our will, we choose our desire, we choose to please ourselves, how would you know that God is reliable? How would you know that God is faithful? Abraham grew in faith. There was this clip on YouTube, this professor, Walter Levin, a physics professor. He demonstrated this experiment. This 10 kg metal ball with a chain to the ceiling. He lifted it up and then he swung it like a pendulum. In the middle, he put a glass panel. Okay, the pendulum hit the glass panel and shattered it. Then he repeated the experiment. He stood against the wall, he put the ball to his face and let go. So the pendulum swung to the other side, came swinging back. It was about to smash him in his face, but he didn't flinch. He just stood there. And then the ball came up to his face and stopped. Then he swung backwards. Why was he able to be unafraid. Why didn't he flinch? Well, because he's a physics professor, okay? He knows the laws of physics. He only comes up to the highest point where you release it. And he has done this experiment so many times. Likewise, unless we rely on God, we learn, we know, we, we grow in our relationship with God. We know that God is faithful. Friends, we will never grow in our faith. So every time we are challenged, every time we face a a difficulty. It is an opportunity for us to grow in faith rather than complain, rather than see, ah, so difficult. To say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the ticket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the place of the, the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Abraham had faith. He went through with the sacrifice, but God stopped him and provided him a lamb, a substitutionary lamb. The lamb died in place of Isaac. You know, someone once asked me, this story of Abraham is very difficult to apply because Abraham knows the outcome. Abraham knows that God promised uh, the promises will come through Isaac. But I don't have such promises. So how do I submit? I say it's a good question. I also don't know. But every time we learn to rely on God, we grow in our relationship with Him. That 
we know that God brings us through this. He says He will provide and He will give something better. And again, the thing that is better isn't that whatever we give up, God bless us with more. It is the intimacy with God. It is our growth in our relationship, the joy, the purpose of our lives is walking close with God because we know God has given us the best, which is His Son. He demonstrated His love upon the cross when Jesus died. When I look at my own journey with God, you know, there are times when I make decisions to surrender, but there are times when I didn't, I have no choice. I mean, when I first came to Christ, I understood if you follow Jesus, it means you follow God's will and not your own. That's logical, right? If I didn't want to follow Jesus, then why I want to believe in Him in the first place? I might as well do, you know, you do you, I do me, you know, I do my own life. And so I shared with you all before, right, my first struggle, why I don't want to be a Christian is because, yeah, like that, cannot date non-Christian. I thought I've always been in a boys' school, go to army, all boys, finally go to college, have girls. And then, Singapore's Christian population, only 7% at the time. It means every 10 girls I meet, nah, nine is disqualified. But thank God, you know, I never struggled with that because the moment I believed in Jesus, I thought, yalla, that's what that is required because not my will, but yours be done. A few months later after my conversion, I got together with somebody, a Christian. Uh, and then after a few months, she said, you know, when I, I made a vow to God in college, I'll be single. And I said, wow, like that? Then why we started dating, you know? And so because of that, uh, we said we need to break up for the next few years until we graduated. And those were very challenging years for me, right? Because I didn't want to give it up. But yet, now looking back, they were the years that I grew the most. Not my will, but yours be done. You know, the day I was saved, I became a Christian, I felt God's call. Didn't understand why, but I just felt it. It took 10 years to work out. And finally, when I had to make the decision to quit my job, I thought, you know, that represented my financial security. That represented my place in this world because that's what, how other people will look at me. But you know what? It is not my will, but yours be done. I went to the States for 10 years, finally decided to come back because I felt my calling was in Asia, not there. I felt, no, I gave up my career to serve God, not so that I can live a good life in the US. But you know, I love convenience and comfort. Who doesn't? But I understood it's not my will, but God's will be done. But I don't always make the right decisions. Last year when I shared the whole saga of moving house, ultimately, it comes down to my desire for convenience and contentment. And I struggle with it. There are times, friends, when I didn't have a choice to make, or rather, the situation was forced upon me. Got married and found that, oh, we couldn't have children. It's like, what? You know, infertility happens to other people, not me, you know. And then after that, you know, when my wife was eight months pregnant with the twins, the doctor says, oh, one of them has a hole in the heart and the other maybe have Down syndrome. And for 45 minutes, it was like the end of the world. We sat there waiting for the other doctor to come and I thought, Lord, are you kidding me? We tried so hard to get children and then now you tell me they have all these problems. But I will accept it. I will keep the children because it's not my will but yours be done. Then thank God they came out normal. Far more than normal. <laughs> now they are 14 years old. Of course, when my daughter was 18 months old, you know her blood problem, right? And those were the worst years of my life. Thank God you don't, me, don't know me at that time. Worst years of my life. 
And the day it happened, I remember that I was sitting in the worship, you know, and we were singing about God's goodness, and God reminded me of this story to put my daughter on the altar as Abraham sacrificed Isaac. And I told God, you know, for many times in my own life, I've placed myself on the altar, but I cannot do it with my own child. But friends, I had a decision to make. You see, I have to walk through this valley of the shadow of death anyway. It's either I hold God's hands tightly when I walk, or I say, forget it, I'm doing this on my own. I can choose to say, why is God like that? And forget it, you know, I'm just going to walk away. But you know what? I still have to walk through this valley, right? So which is better, to do it on my own or continue to trust God and hold on to His hand even though I do not understand nor do I see? I held on to the fact that God has given us, given me His best gift ever, His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is why I continue to trust in His provision I continue to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. When we look at Jesus and the story of Isaac, for me, I've learned that God doesn't bring us on a journey of faith or give us something just that, just so that He can make a fool of us. As I went through all these things, this is something I realized, quote from me, okay? I come to realize, you know, God doesn't... It's not a party pooper and no, really want to make fun of you or see you suffer then just very happy and laugh at you. He's not trying to make a fool of us. Every time we meet a challenge, it's an opportunity for us to grow in faith. To say, Lord, here is my life, take my life and let it be. Not my will, but yours be done. We look at the Jesus and Isaac. Isaac was the promised son. Abraham waited for him for 25 years. Jesus was the promised son. God prophesied that he would come for thousands of years. You look at scripture that describes him. To Isaac, he says, Abraham, he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world, he gave us his only begotten son. When Jesus came out from the pool after his baptism, God says, this is my son of whom I'm pleased. Isaac was sacrificed at Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was where they built Jerusalem years later and the temple was built there. And thousands of years later, on the same mountain range of Moriah, on a different peak, Mount Calvary was where Jesus was sacrificed. Isaac at the time was about 12, 13 years old. He's not a small boy, he's a young man. I said it's not one log, it's a whole bunch of wood Abraham placed it on his shoulders. He was carrying the wood, the weight of the wood pushed him down and it shows us the image of Jesus bearing his cross as he walked to Golgotha. For three days, Abraham walked to Mount Moriah and for three days, to him, his son was dead, right? God already told him. So for three days, he knew his son was dead but three days later, he got his son back. Whereas Jesus died for three days but three days after he resurrected. When he came to Isaac, God provided a substitutionary lamb. Isaac didn't have to give up his life, but Jesus did. Genesis 22 says, God will provide for himself the lamb. If we read it loosely, it says, God will provide himself the lamb. There's no four, okay? So, 
is there's a hint. He says, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. On the mount of the Lord, which is where Jerusalem is, God will provide. Provide what? The substitutionary lamb. So while Isaac didn't have to die, God provided a lamb. Jesus Christ became our substitutionary lamb when He kneeled upon the cross 2,000 years ago. He gave His life for our life so that people who are like us, who are imperfect, as we stand before a holy, perfect God, we do not have to bear the wrath of God ourselves. Jesus took it by giving His life. And friends, this is the greatest love story ever told. From the creation event, we see that Jesus is the Creator who fills the emptiness with His life and wants to recreate us to make us a new creation. In the story of Adam and Eve, Jesus is the promised seed of the woman who will come and save us. The animal skin that will cover our nakedness and shame so we don't have to do it ourselves. In the story of Cain and Abel, we see to offer a sacrifice, we need faith. Jesus is the one with perfect faith who offered the perfect sacrifice Himself. His blood gives forgiveness. In the story of Noah, we see that salvation is exclusive. There's only one way and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the story of Abraham, we saw that Jesus is the seed of Abraham through whom all nations will be blessed. And today we see that Jesus is the greater Isaac who gave his life for us. Friends, God has written, already written our stories into his love story. Those of us who know him, who follow him, he has already done that. The question is, how will we respond? Will we say, Lord, here is my life. Take my life. Let it be. Not my will, but yours be done. That is surrender. Margaret Feinberg, she wrote a book called Sacred Echo. In it, she interviewed a person called Steve Saint. Who is he? Steve's father, Nate, is a pilot and one of the martyrs together with Jim Elliot, the five of them, okay? Uh, and I shared last week, right, after they martyred, Jim's wife, Elizabeth, together with their 10-month-old daughter and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel Saint, two women and a child stayed behind, continued to reach out to their tribal people who killed the five men, eventually moved in with them, eventually opened the whole tribe to the gospel. So Steve, at 10 years old, moved into the tribe. He was raised in the tribe because to live with, he lived with his aunt, Rachel. And one of the men, of the elder of the church called Minkaya, became like his grandfather. Minkaya was the one who drove the spear into his father's heart years ago. So, Michael Feinberg was interviewing Steve, and Steve Saint said, I don't think years ago God simply allowed the five men to be killed. I believe God made this plan together with five people who were willing to lay their lives down for Him. He's talking about surrender. And then he says, oh. Most people don't want to give God liberty to use their lives that way because we call it tragic. Most think that it is okay to go with God's program as long as it fits their program. We surrender only because it fits what we want to do, what we think is safe, what we can control. 
But I finally decided that I wanted God to write the story because I know that it will come out best in the end that way. Then he began to share his own life. He says, a, a year before this interview, his youngest child, his daughter, 21 years old, just came back for a year-long mission trip. Nine hours later, she was dying in the hospital. She had a brain hemorrhage. He says, sitting in her hospital room, I had assurance that if I had prayed for a healing, God would have answered. But I did not. I've seen enough tragedies that God has used for His purposes. And then Margaret Feinberg said, wait a minute. You mean to say you have full confidence looking at your dying daughter if you prayed, God would have listened, and you didn't? And he nodded. Finally, Feinberg ended. She, she said this. She says, true surrender is not something that happens to you. It's something you do willingly. It is not a single action, but a posture in life, yielding ourselves to God. Isn't this what Francis Havergill said? Consecration is a posture of our life. It is not an action, it's not a step, it's a whole course of life. And there are times when we struggle, there are times when we make the right decisions, there are times we don't. But we continue to consecrate because God is worthy, because God is faithful and continues to hold on to us. And so scripture says, this is one of my favorite scripture in passage, passage in scripture, so I, I don't have to explain it. Let me read. He says, Now you know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. God's will for us is to cause good. The good is so that we can become like Christ, conformed to the image of His Son. These whom He predestined, He also called. These whom He called, He also justified. These whom He justified, He also glorified. One day we'll be glorified together with God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He, did not, he who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we know this because the cross is proof. And if so, how can we not say God, take my life, let it be. Consecrated all for thee. Not my will, but yours be done. And it doesn't mean that we spend all our time in church doing religious things. It means that everything that we do, we do with a posture of surrender. As a, some, as a, as a housewife, as a student, as a teacher, as an executive, our lives are surrendered. There was this teacher in New York. Her students all come from broken families. 
and they don't think much of their future. So she prayed, Lord, what can I do to help them? You know, and, and certain things she thought about, she thought it's going to be difficult. What will her colleagues think? You know, there'll be challenges. But she decided to let God use her life. So the next day, she asked every student to come out one at a time and she pinned a ribbon on them. The ribbon says, who I am makes a difference. And then she will tell the, the child why they are important. And then, after everyone, she gave each of them three ribbons. She says, go and repeat this experiment. Find someone who is important to you. And then next week, give me a report. Well, one of the child walked across the street, right? Went to this executive, junior executive. This person has been helping him during recess. So he pinned the ribbon on him and says, you know, thank you for helping me and gave him two rib the, the next two ribbons. So he thought, who can I give? He thought, oh, maybe give my boss. His boss was an angry, grouchy person. But was very creative. So he went to his boss's office and says, boss, thank you for your creativity. I've learned a lot from you. He says, can I pin this on you? The boss says, yes. And he says, here's one more ribbon. He says, go find somebody who's important to you. The boss went home, looked for his 14-year-old son. He says, son, today, one of my junior executives did something amazing. He pinned the ribbon on me and said why he appreciated me. And he asked me to look for someone I appreciate. And immediately, I thought about you. Usually, I don't have time to spend with you. Every time I see you, I'm scolding you because, you know, your room is so messy or your results are so bad. But I want you to know, apart from your mother, you are the most important person in my life. He pinned the ribbon on him. The son looked at it and says, who I am makes a difference. And he began weeping uncontrollably. He said, Dad, earlier in the afternoon, I was in my room writing a letter to you and Mom to explain to you why I took my life. You see, I've always felt that I was a burden to you, that I was nobody, I was unimportant. But now I don't think I need that letter anymore. The father went to a room, read the letter, and you know, his whole world collapsed. But he became a changed man after that. How did this happen? You know, because someone was willing to say, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Take my life, let it be. Years ago, about 15 years ago, I met a new friend in church for lunch. It's the third time I met him. Okay, usually new friends come, I eat with them. So if I have meals with you, don't be too afraid. When he walked into the restaurant, I had this burden, this feeling. The Lord moved me to pray for him and to share the gospel. So after the meal, I scribbled the gospel track on the back of the tissue, right? I said, you want to accept Christ? He said, yeah. Oh, I did also can. A few years later, we became good friends. He told me that, you know, the time when he came to church, he was giving God the last chance for his life. He says, I have everything I want in life, but I find no meaning and purpose. My life is so empty. Now, we are good friends, but I didn't dare to probe to ask what you mean by give your life a last chance. He went on to help out many troubled youths. In fact, this last trip back in December to the States, some of the fathers came up to me and said, well, they are so thankful for this brother, you know, because he invested in their children, helped them grow in their relationship. One life change that affected many because we say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, we have followed Jesus for years for some of us. We look at scripture, we look at lives and we understand this is the greatest love story ever told. He has weaved our stories into His and it is ours now to retell this story. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done.
Let us pray. I'll give us time of silence to meditate and to respond in prayer. And let's just sit in silence as we listen to the worship team lead us in this song, Take My Life and Let It Be. And be, make that our faith response. Lord, here is my life, my treasure, my moments. Take it. It is all for you. Not my life, not my will, but yours. Be done. As you sit and listen, respond to the Lord in prayer.